If you uh, have a copy of God's Word, we'd encourage you to uh, turn to Philippians uh, chapter 2. It's in the the back end of the New Testament. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can just follow along uh, in the bulletin or on the screen uh, provided behind us. Um, If you were with us last week, uh, you'll know that we have uh, begun a look at the book of Philippians and really what its main theme is, and that is uh, the theme of joy. We talked about how uh, joy feels in short order in our culture, so it's important for us to really think about it. And as we looked at it last week, we saw that joy is very different than happiness. Uh, We saw how happiness really is circumstantial, but joy is something different. It isn't related to our circumstances. Instead, it's it's like a deep river that runs below the surface that is not necessarily uh, subject uh, to the storms that life tends to throw our way. And when you think about it, all of us are are basically looking for joy. I think that's a a desire that God has written into each and every one of our hearts. But what we do is is we mistakenly look for joy in our circumstances. Uh, You've probably all heard the term, uh, the grass is always greener on the other side, and I'm sure you know really what that means. It means that uh, we tend towards perpetual dissatisfaction uh, with our current state of life, and we're always looking or pining after some sort of change. Uh, And we all do this. We think about it, if I could just have that, then I would be happy. Or if I could just be this, then I will be happy. And so what we do is we constantly pine after the next thing never really finding contentment with what God has given us or where God has placed us. And and when you think about it, social media really kind of puts this on steroids in a lot of ways um, because what it uh, invites us to do is compare ourselves to other people and their uh, seemingly lavish lifestyles that they uh, share with us on social media. And then all of a sudden, our lives just feel inferior, or they don't quite feel as good or meaningful as that other person's life. And so what do we do? We hop from situation to situation. We never really root ourselves anywhere, hoping and believing that that next situation or that next thing will make us feel okay. But what? It never really does. And that's because joy isn't related to our circumstances. Instead, it is rooted in our relationship. So our passage this morning is uh, Philippians 2, uh, verses 1 to 11. Listen to, to God's Word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Father, be with us as we look at your word. May your spirit use it to change our hearts, to draw us closer to you, to remind us of the things that most matter in life. May we be refreshed as we encounter you and your word and as we remind our hearts of the truth of the gospel. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, our passage this morning is, is perhaps one of the most uh, profound passages in all the New Testament, so I will not do it justice. Um, but how I'd like to organize it as we look at it is to first look at the first half of this passage, verses 1 to 5, and look at the command that it calls us to follow. And then I want to look at the second half of our passage, verses 6 to 11, as they talk really about uh, the example that we are to fix our eyes upon. So let's first look at that command to follow, which is really articulated in verses 1 to 5, but really encapsulated in verses 3 to 4 that I want to read again. It says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Uh, David Brooks, we're reading his, his book in our May reading group, but he wrote a, a book um, a couple years ago called The Road to Character. And there's a chapter uh, in The Road to Character called uh, The Big Me, and uh, it's an important chapter where he calls our culture a big me culture. And in order to really describe what he's talking about, he uh, describes two football quarterbacks. One is Joe Namath, uh, the other is Johnny Unitas. Uh, if you know anything about Joe Namath, uh, he was obviously a famous uh, football quarterback, uh, but Joe Namath was, and probably still is, uh, all about flash and attention. Uh, everywhere he goes, it really is a big show, and he wants to be the center of that big show. Even today, if you remember a couple Super Bowls ago, he came out and flipped the coin, and he was wearing a, a, a very gaudy fur coat that everybody talked about uh, on social media for a little while. And that's because Joe uh, wanted all the eyes upon him, and in still many ways, he wants uh, all the eyes upon him. But Johnny Unitas was a different type of quarterback. He was, of course, a hero here in Baltimore uh, for the Baltimore Colts. And in many ways, he was uh, the opposite of Joe Namath. He deflected attention off of himself, often towards his teammates. Uh, he seemed particularly uncomfortable uh, whenever he was thrust into the limelight. Uh, in fact, when I was a kid, I had a couple opportunities to, to run into Johnny Unitas and had a couple of conversations with him, and you would never know to talk to him that he was a, a famous quarterback. He was very unassuming, never really wanted to draw attention to himself. You would never have known that there was something special about him. Well, what Brooks says is that we live in a Joe Namath culture. In many ways, it is all about us. It is all about the big me. 
And everything is about what we want, it's about what we desire, and no one can really tell us otherwise. We individually decide what is right for us, we decide what path to follow, we tend to pick and choose what to believe if and only if it really works for us. And in many ways, we become an authority unto ourselves. And so if it fulfills us, we go for it. And if it doesn't, we reject it. And so in this pursuit of happiness, which we all feel very entitled to, we, as one commentator put, climb the ladder of self-ambition at the expense of others around us. And so in many ways, that is the culture we live in. And then we come to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, where it says this. It says, do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing at all. It says to always downgrade your interests and your desires and to always elevate the interests and desires of others. Not just some of the time, but all of the time. There's no real me time in the, vocabulary of, in the vocabulary of the scriptures. The interests, the needs, the desires of those around you should always rule you. You are subject to them and their desires, their needs, and their wants, and not your own. And so what that means is that when somebody comes to you with a need, at the end of the day, it really isn't an interruption. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a child. Their, their need isn't to be an interruption to you. Sure, it might be a distraction to you, right? But it is not an interruption because ultimately, if what Philippians says is true, it is a calling. It's an opportunity for you to follow Christ's command to love others above yourself. Now, I don't know about you, but when people talk about the Scriptures, they often say that the Old Testament has all these rigid and regimented rules that are impossible to follow, and then you get to the New Testament, and it's all about grace, and there aren't any rules that are really hard or difficult to follow. But then you come to Philippians chapter 2, and this feels like one of the most difficult of all the commandments that we read in all the Scriptures. And I think I've realized that the older I've become. Because the older I've become, I think the more I've come to terms with the fact that probably the most besetting sin that I wrestle with day in and day out in my own life is my own personal selfishness. I don't know if that's true about you, but I know as the older I've gotten, the more I've been convicted of that very thing in my own heart. I've told you before the story of of me doing the dishes for my wife, and I use this illustration a lot. And I can remember one time my wife was having a a difficult day. I could see at the dinner table that she was really tired. So I said afterwards, I said, "Uh, sweetheart, I will go and do the dishes for you. And so ostensibly, that's a, a very good act. It's a good deed as we look at it from the outside. But as I've told you before, as I was washing the dishes, what, I, what was I doing? I was talking to myself and priding myself on what a good husband I was. I was looking out the window at my neighbor at the house next to me, and he wasn't doing the dishes for his wife. So what was I doing? I was taking a very good and selfless act, and I was making it all about myself. I was making it a selfish act. 
And so, friends, this is really ingrained in our hearts. It's certainly ingrained in our culture, but it's certainly ingrained in our hearts as well because that's what sin does. It, it, it makes us selfish. It makes us want to be our own gods. It, it bends our hearts in on itself. And if we're pretty honest, it also affects the way we interact with others, and it also affects the way we love one another within the church, because often our selfishness is the thing that leads to all sorts of divisions within God's people. And I think that's why Paul is mentioning it here, because yes, the book of Philippians is a lot about joy, but it also connects joy to this idea of unity within God's people. And so what what Paul is saying here is that the key to unity in, in, in the Philippian church, in our church, in any church, is a radical selflessness. It is it is putting the needs and interests of others above your own. And so I think somewhere along the way, uh, we've kind of lost a clear picture of what the church is really supposed to be. Um, Yes, the church is about gathering for worship, what we're doing here this morning, uh, centering ourselves on the message of the gospel. But what the church is also to be about is it is to be about relationships. It is a weaving of relationships in which we radically and sacrificially care for one another. It reminds us that church is not just a show that we put on every Sunday morning. Sometimes we put on a good show. Sometimes we make some mistakes. But really, church is to be about a network of relationships that help to radically display the selfless love of God to a watching world. The church is intended to be a deep dive into relationships, not being content with just Uh, shallow or superficial relationships with one another. And don't be mistaken, our unity doesn't come from our shared opinion, because we never share a lot of the same opinions in the church. Our unity comes from our radical care for one another, our selfless care for one another. And I think we also see it at times in the way we select churches. I always find it interesting how people select churches and how they shop around and Often the biggest question they ask is, uh, is this a church that is going to meet my needs? When really the question we should be asking ourselves is this, does this church provide a context for me to meet the needs of other people in radical and selfless ways? One commentator's definition of the church is this. I think it's a great one. He says, the church is a group of individuals who, despite their differences, are willing to show love for one another through putting the well-being of others first. Uh, This weekend, I I, uh, finished a book I've been reading called Boys in the Boat. Uh, It was uh, a book recommended to me by uh, Mark Olson, uh, one of our own. And it's uh, the story of uh, the 1936 uh, rowing team. And if you remember the 1936 Olympics, that's the one that was in uh, Nazi Germany. And it follows the story of this rowing team uh, throughout their um, uh, university career. They were the rowing team from the University of Washington. Uh, But in particular, it follows one of their rowers, uh, a young man named Joe Rance, and it follows his life. 
And it starts very early in his life when he was a child. And what you learn is that his life was particularly hard uh, from the get-go. He grew up in the midst of the Depression, um, so he was poor in every way that you could consider. Um, But he also had a very difficult family life. Um, uh, At the age of 15, uh, his father had remarried. Uh, His his mother-in-law didn't want anything to do with him whatsoever. So at the age of 15, his family up and left him, abandoned him to live on his own. And he remembers at the age of 15 saying this. He's saying, I'm going to live my life on my own. I'm going to be an individual. I'm going to be autonomous. Everybody else has given up on me, so I'm going to choose not to rely on anybody else ever. I'm going to be self-reliant. I'm going to figure it out on my own. I'm going to do things for myself. And he was pretty successful for that for most of his life. He gets into the University of Washington. He gets on this rowing team. But he realizes in his rowing career that he's good. He, of course, was uh, strong as an ox. He had a great work ethic. He was really good, but things weren't really clicking for him in the boat. Until one day. And one day he realized that all of his uh, autonomy, all of his uh, individuality, All of his self-ambition was actually the thing that was getting in the way of him being successful. He was trying to act as an individual in the midst of a boat that was supposed to function collectively. And when he finally surrendered himself to his teammates, it made all the difference and he was unstoppable. And he said that the key to his success at the end of the day was this, the key to his success was humility. Friends, in many ways, this is what God calls His church to be. He calls it to be a community where all individualism and all self-reliance is lost, where we radically care for the needs of others and put the interests, their interests, above our own. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a lot about this in his book, um, Life Together, as he talked about the community of faith. And uh, he actually gives a really good list of the ways this fleshes out in a church community. And I I think what I'm going to do this week is put it up on a blog and put it on our website so you can see them all. But he says that it looks a little bit like this, life together, life in community. He says, we listen long and patiently so that we will understand our fellow Christians' need. He says it looks like our refusal to consider our own time and calling so valuable that we cannot be interrupted to help with the unexpected needs, no matter how small or menial. He says we declare God's Word to our fellow believers when they need to hear it. And so he goes on and on about what this life together is really supposed to look like. And friends, what it means is ultimately to put the interests of others before your own, all the time, in every way. Does that feel impossible to you? Does it feel unattainable to you? Well, I don't know about you, but as I reflect on this passage this week, it felt impossible to me. It felt unattainable to me. And that's why I think Paul gives us the second half of this section, because in the second half, he gives us an example to fix our eyes upon, which is verses 6 to 11. 
Uh, the other thing that I learned uh, about this book that I was telling you about, Boys in the Boat, is, is how a rowing team works. And on a rowing team, there's, there's eight individuals rowing, uh, but at the very front of the boat is a very important person. He's called the coxswain, and he's the one that is the, the captain on the field. He is the one that shouts out the pacing and the strategy and everything about it. And so everyone else in the boat knows that it is their job to do one thing, to fix their focus and their attention, everything about them when they're in that boat on that person and what they are saying. And I thought about that as I read Paul's letter and his call to us to fix our eyes upon Christ as the example of radical and selfless love. Verse 5, Having this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You see, you read Paul's comments in verses 1 to 5, and you think this, I've never met anyone who has lived this way. I've never met anyone who's even been close to this, and you are right in thinking about that, because only Christ at the end of the day lived purely in this selfless, radical sort of way. And so He becomes our example in all of this. Because when you think about it, the the story of the gospel presents to each and every one of us the greatest act of humility, and that is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the taking on of human flesh by our Savior. And what our passage tells us is that Jesus wasn't content to remain in the bliss of heaven, allowing each and every one of us to uh, try to wrestle with our sin and eventually die with our sins. And so what did Christ do? He set aside the rights and privileges of heaven to plunge his hands into the filth of humanity. He assumed the the limitations of humanity becoming a servant. John Calvin wrote this, that, that Jesus had been brought down to the level of mankind so that there was in his appearance nothing that differed from the common condition of mankind. He, he emptied himself, is what our passage tells us, allowing his creation. He didn't just empty himself and become one of us, but he emptied himself, allowing his creation to be the cause of his own suffering and eventual death. And in so doing, Christ becomes our example. And so whenever the needs of others threaten to disrupt our lives and to to interrupt our plans, whenever we feel that internal struggle between living for ourselves and living for the needs of others, what are we to do? I think what Paul is saying is this, fix our eyes on Christ, who is our example. Fix our eyes on the suffering servant who willingly gave himself up for us. Because only by focusing on Christ and on Christ alone will we ever find in us the ability to live for others and to not live for ourselves. 
Friends, this is what God calls us to do. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It means to live selflessly just as our Savior did. It means to never do anything out of selfish desire. Never. And Jesus becomes our example in this. But friends, if you're like me, uh, the example of perfection can sometimes feel unattainable. And so that is why I think we fix our eyes on Christ, not just as our example, but I think we need to fix our, our eyes ultimately on Christ as our Savior. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, friends, you and I, we're selfish people who elevate our desires every day. We take even selfless acts and we make them all about us. Our selfishness makes us live for our own glory instead of for God's glory. Nothing is more uh, symptomatic of our sinful nature than our selfish pride and our lack of humility. And that is exactly why Christ came. That is why Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on a cross. He did it so that selfish people like you and I could still be recipients of grace, made possible by his ultimate selfless act. You see, if Christ was just an example, then I think the pressure to follow this command would be crippling. We'd be crushed by the law's demands to live selflessly at all times. And that is why I am thankful that Christ came not just as an example that we are called to live by, but He is a Savior who offers abundant grace to selfless, selfish and sinful people just like you and me. See, this passage isn't just about ethics. It isn't just about an ethical dimension. It's ultimately about a gospel dimension. And that, my friends, is really good news. He is our Savior, the one who emptied himself so that we could be made whole. Let's pray.